From Bentonville, the epicenter of retail's hometown, it's the Supplier Community Podcast, giving you 24-7 access to a community of emerging and experienced thought leaders in the retail space. Enjoy the show. Bill Hildebolt is one of those early adopters of influencer marketing and the founder of Gen.Video, a company that is paving the way for influencer marketing and shoppable media. His presentation at our e-commerce event in late 2018 was all about quality content and the importance of content that is correctly and easily identifiable as sponsored content. As we've seen in the last few months on Instagram and other platforms, influencers, agencies, and brands got into hot water for not properly or completely identifying content as sponsored. Such omissions can ruin a company's reputation, destroy an influencer's career, and solly a once pristine brand. Bill gives some case studies and talks design philosophy, transparency, and the optimum level of information on an e-commerce page. As always, contacts and content run wild on our website, supplier.community. I do have a question. How many people liked history class in school? Okay, all right. Well, this is going to be kind of a history lesson, if you will. Uh, I'll try to make it more fun than your professors or teachers did. Um, But if nothing else, I'm going to prove to all of you just how damn old I am. Because we are going to go back and we are going to start uh, in 1995. Um, And I will tell you a little bit more about Gen Video, but let's get into the presentation first. Also, uh, for sure, because we are going to cover a lot of materials if we go back to 1995, ask questions as we go. Uh, It can be about anything. Uh, I'm going to sort of purport like I experienced the entire history of the internet. It's clearly not obviously true, but for uh, for sure I'm happy to, um, I I think it'll make much more sense and be a lot more fun if we do address anything that you want to dive into as we go along. Otherwise, you will probably forget, given the amount of uh, material we're going to cover. And if this was actually a class, this would be a survey class for sure. Um, so we are going to do a short history of user-generated content. We're definitely going to talk about influencer marketing because that's what uh, I am focused on today. And it's a really vibrant, fun, and exciting space. Um, we'll even go through some research that we did there. And then we'll make some predictions about the future shopping. I am not a futurist. but. Um, Fortunately, I think one of the things that, one of the macro or uh, uh, meta lessons that might come out of this is it's actually not that hard to predict the future. What it is hard to do is time it and actually to change the future. So, you know, I I do think hopefully some of the things that we'll see as we look backwards will help us understand uh, that and how do we optimize around the, the world that we live in today. So again, there's sort of been three separate segments of the space that I generally work in, which is content created by what we would call real people. We can't even call them amateurs anymore uh, because influencers can make a lot of money, and I may shock you as we get into that with some of those statistics. Um, But um, for sure, somebody who's not affiliated with a professional publisher, perhaps, is how we might have to define this space. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit about user-generated content, We'll take a brief tour through uh, social and some of the platforms that have tried to uh, capture that or benefit from us from that those trends, and then we'll definitely spend some time on uh, what what is now called influencer marketing. And so the first thing is let's talk about the birth of text reviews. Um, so. 
Text reviews were born in 1995. Uh, they actually were built into Amazon from the beginning. They were, that functionality was built into the site before the site was even uh, publicly available. Um, the first text reviews were therefore written by employees at Amazon. Um, and again, so one of the things that's interesting, I now have employees who were not born when text reviews came out. That's very challenging for me to deal with psychologically. Um, so I have to sort of remind myself and remind them that this was not inevitable. There were publishers, book publishers, Amazon was a book source, that refused to sell on Amazon at the beginning because they didn't like text reviews. They thought it was an evil idea and it shouldn't exist, right? So let's think about that. Who would want real people talking about my products? That's where we started from. Another thing that's kind of interesting, this is actually a screenshot from 2006, so much, much, much later. Um, I will tell you the site didn't change that much between 1995 and 2006, but another couple just interesting things here. One, and the reason I picked this screenshot in particular, Toys R Us prominently featured. What's the news from Toys R Us? Of course, they're going away. So here's one of those meta lessons, don't, bank, or don't sell your future to somebody else. Um, another thing is um, there's a lot of talk about how Amazon has you know, only recently gotten into apparel. Not true, they've been in apparel for 10 years banging away. And so some things take a lot of time to come together and to happen. Another thing that I think just mythologically we sometimes think things are happening very quickly and they do feel like that from day to day. But again, let's go back to this. 1995 was the birth of uh, text reviews and arguably the birth of user-generated content on the web. The other thing, though, to understand about text reviews, again, today they seem so inevitable and they seem so overwhelming. It was not actually particularly successful uh, at the beginning of uh, when Amazon first launched that functionality. Like I said, the first text reviews are actually written by employees. So Fogdog was another early uh, e-commerce site actually one that uh, did act, go IPO, uh, and so it was successful. Unfortunately, they went IPO about the same time that Pets.com did, and as everybody knows, Pets.com became the poster child for stupid internet ideas at the time. So again, this is way before there was the Chewies and other successful pet sites. Um, and when Pets.com went down, it drug a lot of other things down with it, um, including Fogdog. Um, but Fogdog, is important because uh, of who the founder of Fogdog was, and we'll see him again in a minute. Um, but so Fogdog was very customer-centric. They also had customer reviews. They had a lot of expert content, and they actually had athletes answering the Q&A that uh, customers would have about the products. They thought that was like really important because they could see the future of Q&A was going to be really, really important, as, as was covered earlier today. Um, and so Jeff Bezos came to visit uh, Fogdog in 1999, and Jeff Bezos said, hey, you know, I see you guys have customer reviews too. I was really excited about this functionality. It's not working out. We don't know what to do. Nobody will write the damn text reviews. And you guys seem to have a lot. And so the founder of Fogdog, being the generous, uh, collaborative individual that he was, said to his direct competitor, um, well, you know what we do is we actually send emails a couple weeks after people buy the product. And that's what drives all the behavior around customer reviews. A month later, Amazon launched that same functionality and suddenly text reviews took off. Four years later. So again, if you've got an idea and it seems obvious and it seems like I don't understand why this is working, you know, maybe the answer is step back, think about 
Why isn't it working? And what could we tweak here to get the response or the behavior that we needed? So again, Jeff Bezos, smartest guy in the world, had, had very much been a proponent of the idea of text reviews. He was right. But what he couldn't figure out was how to make it work. And all he needed was this little nudge from, uh, from a competitor who, unfortunately, then later went out of business. By the way, the, the founder of Fogdog was also the founder of Power Reviews, who was uh, a competitor to Bizarre Voice. And some of you may know that story. That could take an hour in itself just to talk the story of Bizarre Voice and Power Reviews. And of course, what they did was they uh, basically brought text reviews to the rest of the e-commerce community. Very few sites actually had text reviews uh, as recently as 2005, 10 years later, 10 years later, most e-commerce sites still did not have text reviews. The most fundamental functionality that you can frankly think of in today's world to bring the voice of the consumer um, to e-commerce, 10 years later, these two companies were founded basically in, at the same time, which is also one of those interesting trends. When you see two companies you know, start at the same time uh, and raise a ton of money to go after an idea, it might be a good idea. But literally, it took 10 years for the rest of the world to figure, uh, to figure out the power of text reviews. And so now I'm going to shift a little bit away from the text review theme and talk a little bit about um, the broader concept of user-generated content. So in 2000, I was a venture capitalist, actually, and I sat on the board of one of the first companies that truly was dedicated to, um, uh, to user-generated content. Uh, it was started by a guy who was the first head of digital at Procter & Gamble, so a super smart guy, and we're actually going to see him again a little bit later in the presentation. Um, and so what did, what, you know, what did he decide to call his company? He decided to call his company Planet Feedback. Planet Feedback. How hey, got some feedback for you. How do you feel? You just tensed up, didn't you? You just think about that. I got some feedback for you. In 1999 or 2000, when we started this company, the idea of empowering, because Pete, who's the founder, his whole idea was empowerment. We're going to empower consumers. And we're going to let them unleash the feedback that they have for all these companies out there. Because back then, before the internet, the only time consumer or companies heard from consumers was when they called the 800 number, or even before that, when they sent a letter. You know how pissed off you've got to be to send a letter to a company? <laughs> You're going to be really, really mad. And so, but that's what we thought. That's what we thought. And so when Pete left P&G to start this company, he was going to empower and unleash all the pent-up anger that consumers had about the products that they used. And so look at this. I, I want to rant. Look at, look at her. She is so annoyed. And so, you know, so the only problem with playing feedback is it's a great idea because, again, consumers definitely wanted to talk. We knew that. The only problem was there was no business model. And by the way, a lot of companies in 1999 had no business model. So don't, don't stare at me accusingly like, how could you start a business without a business model? No one had a business model. Um, but truly, the idea of selling a subscription to P&G to unleash com consumer complaints was not something Procter & Gamble itself was very excited about. And if you couldn't get P&G excited about it, nobody was going to be excited about it. And so what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? So one day, Pete walks into a board meeting and he says, you know, it's the weirdest damn thing. Um, we've been analyzing like 
all the stuff we're getting from consumers, turns out 60% of the submissions that we're getting are actually positive. People are saying they love these products. And I gotta tell you, again, in 2000, so okay, it's 18 years ago, that was a revelation. The idea that people would be positive, would say good things about, would wanted to say great things about products was just mind-boggling. Mind so we very much changed what the service was, and the company uh, actually had a successful exit, became part of Nielsen, um, and again, we will see what happened to Mr. Pete uh, a little bit later. But again, just think about where things are, you know, it's just a lesson in how much the world has changed in the last 18 years. So the next idea that, uh, that I thought was super exciting in the space was a company called uh, BuzzAgent, because again, this was, um, again, back in, in the day, uh, what we were trying to do, we, we knew we wanted to tap into, everybody knew we wanted to tap into this consumer sentiment. And so the, the idea back in the day was there was this phenomenon called word of mouth, right? And word of mouth was just this like magic that like chief marketing officers and brand managers wanted to tap into where somehow mystically people would tell their friends about the product and that was the version, that was virality in an offline kind of world and sales would go up and nobody could just, you couldn't figure out how to like make that happen. And so a guy called Dave, Dave Balter, uh, he had this idea that he would create uh, virality, actually, and uh, the idea of like this viral buzz around uh, products because he would get samples and he would send them out. And what you had to do is if you got a sample of the product um, and then you know, it was a book or whatever, you would consume it. And then you had to tell 10 friends face to face because the concept that that word of mouth would happen digitally, again, was Nobody could think that way back in the day. Uh, so you had to tell 10 people face to face and then you had to write reports uh, on buzzagent.com about all the people that you told. Um, it was a super successful company for a long time. Uh, they had 600,000 agents, which was just oh, an enormous army. Um, and, but one of the interesting things uh, to me about buzzagent, it had a successful exit, it got sold to the agency Dunhunby. Um, it took them about a decade to figure out one thing, which was what could we do with all this stuff, all these conversations, all this 500,000 army that we have. It was never unleashed digitally. It took them about 10 years to figure out, like, what if we asked these people to write text reviews? Literally, it took 10 years before they actually thought to do that. So again, sometimes those ideas that in retrospect seem so obvious uh, just take time. And so I would encourage you, you know, as you, as you do your day-to-day -day activities, think about things like that. Um, so now we're gonna shift and we're gonna talk a little bit about the rise of the influencers. Sort of where did these people come from? How did this happen? Um, and since there have not been any questions so far, I'm gonna ask you a question. Does anybody know what this example that I've got on screen is? Obviously it's girls wearing dresses, but beyond that. Does anybody know the significance of these images? Very interesting. Okay, so Lord and Taylor uh, had this $88 red dress that they wanted to do a social media campaign about. And so they hired 50 influencers to do through their agency to do uh, Instagram posts. All 50 influencers um, 
posted on the same day, and suddenly, so if you were a woman who followed fashion on Instagram, you started seeing this dress all of a sudden, boom, 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 everywhere. The dress sold out, uh, it was a massive success. Uh, all these articles got written about the success of it, but there was one little problem. Any guesses as to the problem? Maybe now, you've, now you might recognize the story. Is there, a, okay, so there is a distinct lack of disclosure on these images. They actually told the influencers, do not disclose that this was a sponsored campaign. Of course, it was a sponsored campaign. Lord and Taylor was behind it. Uh, the FTC came down, and Lord and Taylor got in a bunch of trouble. So I don't want to talk about bad stuff. So I'm not going to come back to, uh, to disclosures and sponsorships. Um, there are very sort of clear rules about stuff like this at this point. Um, you know, if you don't follow the FTC guidelines, you are liable to get your hand slapped by the FTC. Uh, people at your agency will probably get fired, as happened to the agency here. The agency itself, I don't think, got fired, but people at the agency got fired because of it. Um, uh, I actually, though, think the mu much more important thing is what bothers me about this is they weren't transparent with the consumer, right? So. Again, none of you even knew the story, so is there reputational damage to Lord & Taylor? I don't really think so. Um, you know, what were the implications of the FTC coming down on them? I don't think they were actually that significant. But again, they weren't transparent with consumers, and that's the thing that will kill the golden goose, if you will, if you think it's a golden goose, um, is not being transparent in, and letting consumers know what's going on. Because again, if I bought the $88 dress and then I found out it had been a sponsored campaign, I think I would have felt a little duped and uh, dr you know, the dress might have found its way to the back of my closet. If I knew it was sponsored and I still loved it, who cares? It's great, right? And most people now know that a lot of that, this content is sponsored. They just want us to be transparent about it. So that's the object lesson uh, for the day on that. So let's go, now we're in around 2006. Um, blogging was the sort of social media content or the influencer content of the day. Uh, you really hadn't seen uh, Instagram launched like right about that time. YouTube was just launching uh, right about that time. So it was text blogs. That was the thing. Uh, and they were huge. And so, but the thing was, it was very much a cottage industry. Most blogs were very small then as they are today. Um, and so, um, uh, but one thing that you know, was, was true was sponsored content was inevitable, right? We were eventually gonna get around to sponsorship, but it didn't exist then. And so this company, uh, with a brilliantly clear name, Paper Post, launched to help capture the idea of, of sponsorships. There was only one little problem with it. Everybody in the community at the time, you know, you think about this as everything's been very organic and, right, there's, again, this idea of empowerment, power to the people. And so the idea that this content could now be sponsored was perceived by lots of people uh, as just pure evil. And so one of the things that I covered up was uh, paper post as seen in Business Week. Business Week, actually, the title that they're referring to there was The Pollution of the Blogosphere. But Paper Post was so bold in uh, moving forward that they, great, we've been written about in Business Week. Let's talk about that. And they fearlessly 
took this onslaught. This is just a sampling of the headlines that the blog, TechCrunch, wrote about paper post. And so, and this was the prevailing sentiment at the time, that this idea of sponsoring content was just horrific. And by the way, I was already working in user-generated content, and so uh, as a sort of fellow CEO, um, and actually we had a venture capital firm who had funded both us and Paper Post, just imagining myself, you know, waking up every morning and reading these kinds of headlights in TechCrunch made me nauseous. Um, things worked out for Paper Post. They still are, exist. They are now called Isaiah. So they did eventually figure out that maybe they ought to change their name. Uh, but this idea of sponsored content was inevitable, and it was one thing that no matter how much people wanted to fight it and say it shouldn't happen, it was going to happen, and it did happen. So credit to Paper Post for hanging in there with, the, uh, with basically the right idea. Um, another company that you know, could see this idea of experts coming up from, you know, from, from wherever, um, and uh, you know, for fans of uh, Malcolm Gladwell, um, his first book, The Tipping Point, talked a lot about this, the idea that there are connectors and mavens, right? So mavens was another phrase along the way for, um, for what we now call influencers. Um, there was a guy called Seth uh, Godin, Godin, I'm not quite sure how you say his last name. Um, he was one of the real um, gurus writing about this industry. He actually started this website called Squidoo because the challenge for influencers and bloggers was there was no home for them. So Squidoo was going to be kind of like this Wikipedia but organized around experts. Um, and it got really huge for a while, uh, and it's basically gone away today. Um, and so what happened um, was this idea of organizing influencers into a platform that was just, quote, going to be for influencers didn't turn out to be the right idea. Um, the right idea ended up being plat social platforms like Instagram, uh, like Facebook, and I think most compellingly and most important for me, given that I'm in the video space, um, uh, YouTube. And so I do want to talk about two of the original influencers who, who, uh, whose names may or may not be familiar to you all, but um, the first one who you know, I think actually basically, in a, in a sense, is the poster child for, for influencer content is Michelle Fan. Um, she was a blogger first, and then she started making videos on um, YouTube in May 2007. Um, basically, she became famous after BuzzFeed, uh, picked up a couple of her videos, and so um, that is a Lady Gaga uh, makeup tutorial that she did. Has 35 million views today. Um, you can even see kind of looking at it, the production quality is not all that spectacular, and it's letterboxed because YouTube has widened their player in the meantime. Um, uh, and, but she went viral with, the, with that video and then sort of built herself up from there. And as you'll see with both of these examples, you know, what I think is pretty interesting is we start to think about influencers, um, you know, and, I, and, and maybe this is a good time to tell you, there are influencers today whose names you don't know, um, but who charge my company $100,000 to do a single video. $100,000. And actually I had an example recently where we were gonna pay this woman $100,000 to do a video, and something happened with her channel, and so she ended up thinking, and we sort of agreed, that maybe she shouldn't do the video. Uh, and so she said, you know, I do actually really love this product, so I'm still gonna talk about the product, you just don't have to pay me. So now let's think about that, 
It's not that she makes $100,000 for a video, but that she's able to go, eh, I don't need it. That's okay. Um, that's like truly, that's like where I go, oh, geez, I'm in the wrong business. This CEO stuff is for crap. Um, anyway, Michelle Fan, right? So she becomes super famous as a vlogger. Uh, 2010, spokesperson for Lancome. 2011, she starts uh, basically a beauty box company competing with um, some other uh, people in that space. Um, that company's now worth um, half a billion dollars. Uh, she's then started her own makeup line in partnership with L'Oreal. Um, and you know now she has her own TV network. Um, Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, another guy, so um, he started, uh, he actually, his family owned a wine, a liquor store in New Jersey, um, which he brilliantly renamed from Shoppers Discount Liquors to Wine Library. Um, he then decided to do a video blog in May 2006. That's the first video. That's the, one of the first frames from his first video. The Wine Library TV series of videos that he made, um, uh, basically just every week he would ramble for wine for an hour. He'd bring guests on and he'd do other crazy wacky stuff. But I mean, like, the idea that it was like the production quality or anything particular, I mean, wine is not even a particular category on YouTube right now. Um, but he blew it out of the water, um, got covered in the Wall Street Journal. Everybody was watching his videos back in the day. He then published books. Then he started his own agency. That agency today has over $100 million. So the idea that these are like lucky people that just sort of, I don't know, hit it from a timing perspective or whatever is kind of the way I think it's sometimes easy to fall into that trap to think that's who influencers are. Um, sure, maybe if a YouTube didn't exist or an Instagram didn't exist, they wouldn't be famous today. But they are extraordinary people who, who between the right time and the right place and the right platform, did something extraordinary and then have gone on to do many more extraordinary things. Again, not every influencer is like that and not every influencer can be an entrepreneur in eight other categories the way these two have, but they were two of the first. And again, there are some pretty unique attributes to influencers that make them who they are and as successful as they are. And so as I talk more about this space, hopefully I will convince you of, of the power of working with them maybe a little bit through the history of, um, of these two folks. So influencer marketing today is about a $3.5 billion industry. It is very fragmented. There's not a lot of great studies on the size of it, but it is definitely enormous, and it is definitely growing. And I will actually tell you, I was working the company that I founded, uh, Gen Video. Um, we were doing more traditional user-generated content before we shifted to influencer. Um, oh, by the way, there's our friend Pete from Planet Feedback. Um, and so I would totally endorse the quote that he's got, right? Because he started playing feedback. I started this user-generated video company. Influencer marketing has exceeded anything any of us could have possibly imagined. It is just a phenomena. Um, it feels sometimes like it's going to eat the entire media and marketing landscape, especially when I go down in the basement and my son is not watching TV, you know, not doing the things that, um, that I did growing up, but watching you know, influencer content in his vertical of choice uh, on his phone, which is also something we'll talk a little bit more about. Okay, um, I am going to do a quick, uh, just a little uh, brief overview of who we are, who Gen Video is, and what we do. Um, so we do tap the power of influencer marketing um, to drive e-commerce outcomes. 
Um, and so that was, our vision was always, man, video is gonna have a really huge impact uh, on e-commerce, and there's something going on with these text reviews and the power of real consumer voices, and so we wanna put those two things together. That's what we're gonna do. Um, again, I think I was brilliantly correct around the idea. I just think I was about 10 years too early, so there we go, back to that whole timing thing, and things take longer to happen. As fast as they feel like they're happening, they take longer to happen um, than you sometimes expect. Uh, but that's okay, we just keep chipping away, doing our thing. Um, so what we do is we get quality content from, from influencers. Um, and the great thing about influencers today, the quality of the content they generate is so high that, um, again, there are reasons to use professionally produced video. I'm not against professionally produced video in any way, but the production quality today, the, act, the two actually match up um, pretty nicely, right? So you are never going to, with a quality influencer, feel like, ooh, like, that quality, content quality is not quite there. The equipment they have, the capabilities that they bring to the table, you can get that content, and as Nathan said, you should have the rights to be able to use it in any way you would want. Uh, we definitely do that as part of our service because we want brands not only to use the content as influencer marketing, but we want them to put it on their brand site. We want them to create TV commercials out of it. We want them to use it in any way they can imagine, royalty-free. So one, we produced quality content it's just our producers are the influencers themselves. Second thing we do is then we have them post that to their social channels. In the old days, we used to generate these videos and we would have the brands posted to their YouTube channels where no one would watch it. So the beauty of influencers is they have their own following, it's passionate, um, they are trusted, and when we put that content onto the influencers' channels themselves, it is basically awareness. It is a media buy that just happens to have a whole bunch of other benefits embedded to it. Um, so again, we hopefully get hundreds of thousands of views of that video on the YouTube channel. And then again, so then the next piece is because of our expertise in e-commerce, we wanna drive that traffic down funnel. So we use affiliate links so that we can track um, and push content uh, to the product page. And then what we do on the product page itself is we syndicate either directly or through web collage or through whatever source is most appropriate the video content directly uh, onto the product page itself. We obviously do some editing because if you're on a Walmart product page, the last thing you wanna hear is, hey kitties, welcome back to my channel. Be sure to subscribe below and check out the links to all my other videos. It doesn't actually work on walmart.com, so we take all that stuff out and we repackage it so that it's the right length and it's featuring the product uh, benefits and features and demonstration and everything everybody's been talking about, the power of imagery, real people using the product and talking about it in a super compelling way right there on the product page and actually above the fold in the image gallery or hero area as opposed to down below the fold where all those boring old text reviews are. They are so 2005, I mean 1995. Um, okay, I'm gonna go into some research. So again, I'm gonna stop here and ask, does anybody have any questions about anything we have talked about so far? All right, excellent. Um, so 90% of social media use, this was a study that we did uh, last year, 90% uh, of social media users were influenced to make a purchase after seeing content on social media. So absolutely for sure, this is, you know, your customer is on social media um, and whether they know it or not, somewhere in that feed they are getting product ideas from their friends, from influencers, from others, uh, and that is changing their purchase behavior. It is the new advertising of the day, so if we have ad blindness, um, which I think a lot of us have, um, what we don't have 
is uh, you know, the blindness to the social media that we are consuming seemingly 24 seven. Um, and it is affecting the things that um, we buy. Um, and actually, we think of social media, uh, because of our orientation toward e-commerce, social media is an extension of the product page. And I would encourage you to think that way, um, that you know, we, we're here today to talk about what can we do to optimize our product pages. But to me, the product page is just the end point of a purchase decision. And you should think about, you know, as these worlds all converge, that the product page extends out and extends out onto Facebook and extends out onto YouTube. And so the question is, what information does the consumer need at what point along their journey? And how can we deliver that to them? Yeah, yeah, it's a survey. Uh, influencer marketing is media. So again, I think one of the things as we work with brands, right, we're often working with the e-com teams um, and we're working with the folks that are thinking about things that are happening lower funnel. So we have to keep bringing them up and say, don't forget, this is a media purchase, right? This is a, absolutely a marketing activity. And, uh, you know, and to reverse the comment that I just made, let's think about the product page as the last step in a marketing journey. And so how can we make it as appealing and aspirational as possible so that when they get there, it's beautiful and they want to cross the finish line? Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So the most astonishing thing that came out of this uh, survey that we did last year for me was this. And it wasn't even the point of the slide. We just sort of asked, um, you know, you know, who do you trust? Where do you get your information from? Um, and again, so I came from this world where it was word of mouth and it was friends and family. And, you know, everybody asked, you know, Uncle, Uncle Jim, like, you know, which stereo should I buy? And, you know, you went to mom for, you know, recipes. And that's just the way the world was. And so, you know, to see that influencers were now twice as trusted as friends and family, like, I fell off my chair. I mean, I've seen a dozen of these surveys over the last 20 years, and friends and family was always first. They were always the gold standard. So the question wasn't, could you surpass that? It was, how close could you come? That's what BuzzAgent was trying to do. And so to see this result was astonishing. I'd never seen a survey like this. And then I sat back and I thought about it, like, how is that possible? How, how, how can I trust some influencer on YouTube? I mean, I'm in the business. How can I trust a YouTuber on influence, uh, influencer on YouTube more than I trust Uncle Jim? And I'm like, you know what? Uncle Jim actually doesn't know that damn much about a stereo. Like, he's had the same one for the last five years. And like, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. But how can anybody trust, like, an influencer on YouTube more than mom for recipes? Like, well, the thing is, I call up mom. Hey, Mom, can I get the chicken parm recipe? Sure, sure, let me, uh, let me go look for it. By the way, how are the kids doing? And, like, what's going on at the house? And, like, how's the wife? And are you still running? Oh, geez, Ma, I just want the chicken parmesan recipe. So, you know, influencers, they're right there. They're at our fingertips. They're actually closer to us than our friends and family because they're in our phone, which is attached to our hand. And so they're immediate. And they are experts, right? That electronics expert, he's got a pile of 10 stereos, you know, that you can't see off screen that have been sent to him in the last two days. And he's trying them all out. And his credibility is based on his expertise. So suddenly this whole thing, like, made sense to me. What was... The second most exciting thing about this finding for me was brand was right there beside uh, the influencers, actually more influential than friends and family. So this whole thing that, you know, again, some of us have been in the business and actually consider our brands, you know, partners and, and clients and important people. Um, you know, brands have gotten bashed for the last 10 years, the rise of the consumer, and it's all consumer-generated media, and nobody cares what brands think, and everybody hates advertising. Like, not actually true. 
people we understand as consumers that brands actually know is something about their products. And by the way, like that comment about like, uh, well, we've been responding to the text reviews and we've made our product better, right? Like that, people understand that there aren't a lot of crappy products out there anymore. And consumers are getting used to the idea that brands are listening to them. And that's re-empowering brands. And I think you kind of see that here. And again, maybe it's a little too much to read all of that into that one finding. But brands do have a very important voice and, you know, and don't let anybody, especially a guy like me selling influencer and user-generated solutions, tell you otherwise, right? You, it is the two together that I think uh, becomes like, incredibly impactful. So don't let your own voice get submerged. Uh, influencers are experts, though. Um, this is the thing I think we all have to kind of come to grips with, right? Um, they are just unbranded experts. So again, 10 years ago, like a CNET was like super important in electronics. Um, and they're still around, and I think they're doing fine. But honestly, right, it's actually, I want to find the influencer that's right for me in the categories that I care about. And they are, again, right there. They're not hard to find on YouTube. And I can follow them, and they're interesting. And I feel like I can relate to them in a different way that I can relate to professional publishers. Um, I can chat with them. I can leave comments. I'm part of the dialogue. Um, it is, they are incredibly influential um, with, their, with their following base. I'm a huge believer in video, so to me this is not a, an astonishing one. Look, I think the world tends toward rich media, right? I'm a reader, I love to read, I take my Kindle with me everywhere I go, but the reality is, um, for most of us, including myself, I'd rather watch something, I'd rather hear about it, right? There are a reason that newspapers are dying and, and, um, you know, and visual forms of communication uh, are on the rise. You get so much more out of 10 seconds of video than you do out of, um, you know, reading for 10 seconds. Um, it's all these emotional subconscious cues that are going on. And so one thing, and I think everybody said it kind of today already, but we are moving toward a visual world and I would encourage you to spend your time relatively the same way. There will always be a place for product specs in the bullets, but um, the, world, the world is visual and product pages will definitely move that way. Another great thing about video that sometimes um, does not get talked about enough um, video stops people. So, you know, what's the value of video on a product page? Um, what are we all fighting? We're all fighting against uh, uh, people browsing around like 80, you know, there was the comment, uh, six seconds. You know, if you haven't captured them in six seconds, they're on to the next page. Well, the beauty about a video, you can make six second videos, as Amy said, um, but a lot of times those videos are longer. Uh, a lot of our videos, um, purpose-built for product pages, 45 seconds to minute and a half, depending on the category. Well, guess what? If I stop somebody for 30 seconds, that's five other pages, apparently, that they haven't visited. And it gets them out of comparison shopping mode. What's the cheapest price? What's the cheapest price? What's the cheapest price? It gets them into, I really want this one. I want that product. This is the right product for me. Look at that. That kitchen looks like my kitchen. And so we literally have surveyed this and people are willing to spend more money on a product. They start to move into that, that's the one for me mode and out of, can I get 25 cents off? Um, one of the real secret trick values in, you know, in, in rich media. Um, and so um, again, one of the other values of, uh, of video and social video is this idea of experiences that other people are having, right? It is the way we shop and the way we make decisions emotionally is we are trying to figure out what everybody else is doing. And again, we want to have our own style, but our style is an amalgamation of what we've seen 
and sort of the way we integrate those things into our life. So it is very important to be able to visualize myself using that product, even if it's laundry detergent. How's it going to look? How am I going to feel about being associated with this brand? Um, and so that is one of the, uh, again, real benefits that uh, we think comes through um, uh, with video is we tend to believe things that are in motion and that, that we can watch and you know, uh, experience uh, viscerally, vicariously. It is definitely, by the way, a millennial-driven force uh, in influencer content. Um, so one of the hard things for me, I am not a millennial. Um, can't even remember being a millennial. Uh, I mean, I guess I was never technically a millennial, but never even being that age. Um, and so, um, but this is the way, this is the way people, uh, the millennials are shopping, the way they think, the way they identify themselves is through social media um, and through the networks that they build up. You know, again, sometimes with people they've never actually physically met, but that they do because they, they think and they act digitally. To them, those relationships are as real as, uh, you know, the relationships that, for guys like me, you know, had to be face-to-face. -face. Um, and so one of the things I do think that, you know, I want to be sensitive to and one of the themes that, you know, as I was talking to guys like uh, Andy, who started Fog Dog and Power Reviews, and Pete, um, who, who started Planet Feedback and is now the head of digital at Nest Nestle, um, you got to be sensitive, very contextually sensitive, and uh, and I do think you know there are different times where there are different types of content that you know make sense, and there are different depending on the behavior that you're trying to trigger, different platforms that you want to be on, and so again we'll we'll show a little bit more about that, um, but again there are some times where. Video is best for discovery. There are sometimes where video is actually best at the bottom of the funnel, getting people to cross the finish line, you know, on their last sort of technical or demonstration-based uh, questions. Um, and again, this is uh, so one thing we do here, which is sort of the corollary to what I just said. Um, you know, sometimes everybody believes you need a video to sell an electronics product. Um, and, but sometimes we get pushed back and we say like, oh, you know, do you really need a video to, uh, to sell toothpaste? Um, and the answer is, to me, yes. You absolutely need a video to help sell toothpaste. Um, the fact that we don't think that much about the toothpaste that we uh, buy or use um, isn't a reason that you don't need video. It just means you need it at a different point in the decision cycle. You need it a little bit higher funnel. You need to be made aware that there is a new toothpaste that, um, uh, that will work better for you. So the toothpaste I actually use today is, uh, was discovered by me through a campaign that, you know, that we ran, and, be, and it generated the awareness of this new product, um, and I found the content really compelling. So it wasn't a bottom-of-the-funnel kind of thing. It was a top-of-the-funnel kind of thing. I needed to be made aware that this toothpaste even existed. I would have never gone looking for that content, but once it was made available to me, it, you know, it drove the decision. And then a lot of other categories, again, it can be a little bit more about how you integrate. And so Nathan made the point about food um, and how important it is to show food, not the bottom of the can, as Amy said, but actually the food being used in a recipe that then inspires and creates the desire for that. Um, so again, it's, it's making sure that you're thinking contextually about where you're going to use it. This was another interesting finding, and again, very much down that same theme of um, uh, 
Um, YouTube is discovery for, uh, important for discovery and education. And then as you get into some other platforms, right, they're a little bit better for the promotion, like being aware now is the time. They're, they're time-sensitive um, kind of platforms. Um, they are a little bit better for that quick piece of information. There's a sale, there's a coupon, there's uh, you know, this kind of promotion. Um, maybe a little bit on the uh, you know, awareness side as well, but probably a little bit less. Like you're not gonna get educated about a product uh, on Instagram or certainly Twitter, but it can certainly um, do a very important service in you know, driving you down through the uh, funnel itself. Uh, and again, I think, at least for me, uh, sometimes I get a little bit trapped in thinking of, oh, people are Walmart customers, or they're Amazon customers, or they're you know, Target customers. It's eh, not really the way it works. Um, we uh, sort of, all of us, shop in lots of different places, and we have different contexts in which we exist. Um, and we do different things though, perhaps, in those different channels. And so it is, again, being a little bit channel, thinking about the channel that I'm working on today, what are the behaviors that I'm trying to, to, to impact people today, and what are they likely to be doing if they are in this context or, uh, or channel. And so one of the things we try to bring to the campaigns that we run is that sensitivity to you know, what are the behaviors that are likely to be occurring here, and how am I gonna hit the, that consumer with the right message? And again, how am I going to guide the influencers um, you know, as they integrate their message to their followers? And again, un but understanding the context that I'm trying to do in delivering a shopper or e-commerce based uh, program for my clients. And just a little bit more about um, some of that stuff. Um, you know, again, what are people doing when they're on these different platforms? How are they acting? Um, again, I think Facebook is a great one for discovery. Uh, but it isn't one where we spend a lot of time, for example, trying to get people to think you know, lower funnel kind of stuff. We want to make people aware, and then we actually want to pull them out into much more of a, a shopping experience. Uh, and same thing, so we found these, um, we found these interesting uh, divergences in um, where different consumers were, you know, who had a propensity toward one retailer versus a different retailer, where they were getting their product information from, and what platforms, um, you know, where they uh, most uh, had the highest affinity toward. Okay, uh, so no questions on any of the research. Uh, I'm gonna dive into a little bit the future of shopping and the product page. Um, do not expect anything that you haven't heard before or that's gonna be wildly crazy. Because uh, again, I think one of the things I do think is, is the future is predictable. Uh, really the question is, again, how much can you change the future? How much are you trying to take advantage of what you can see coming and optimizing against what is going to happen uh, tomorrow? Uh, so this is a screenshot of Tmall. So um, you know we get uh, really excited about uh, you know Amazon and Walmart here in the United States, uh, biggest uh, e-commerce site in the world. Uh, though in terms of just sort of the volume of products that flow through it is uh, the Alibaba uh, network, which includes Tmall. Um, so I spent a bunch of time. I don't. I can't read Chinese, so it was a little bit challenging. But I did spend a bunch of time like looking at um, their product pages. Um, and if any of you have ever been looked looked on those sites, it's cacophonous, which you, one of the things you'll appreciate is um, there are cultural differences, right? There are ways that uh, you know, we wanna 
we want to shop, and there are ways that other people shop in, in other cultures, and they don't always translate. So this thing looks like just this crazy listing of products, and there's flashing lights everywhere. It looks a little circa 1998 to me. Um, and so you know, I'm not sure there are any great lessons. I didn't find any there that I thought could be brought back uh, or repatriated. And actually, I would argue that probably for better or worse, we're on the cutting edge here in the US uh, to this day in e-commerce. I don't know that anybody would really debate that. Um, and so I would tend to think what you'll see is sites from around the world sort of converge toward the things that we're doing. So unfortunately for all of us, we're the pioneers. And we're going to have to keep figuring stuff out for ourselves and leading. It's a heavy burden, but somebody's got to do it. Um, so the two things, you know, again, obviously I'm a fan of history at this point, maybe because I'm just so damn old. Um, but um, I did talk to, well, I talked to uh, Josh Himwich, uh, who is a guy who was the head of product at the Quizzy sites, which originally diapers.com, and then they expanded to a whole bunch of other things before they got bought by uh, Amazon, which was a shame. That was one of the last sort of truly pioneering, beautiful, beautiful e-commerce sites for those of you that remember diapers.com. Um, and what Josh said, uh, the big takeaway from my, and I'd worked with Josh, but you know, I was like, okay, Josh, talk to me about your design philosophy and how you did things when you were at Quidzy. Basic premise was that anything that's important needs to be revealed to the consumer, nothing should be hidden. So the goal was to constantly recreate the page. It was always fresh and engaging. Um, they were very early with, with big, rich imagery. Um, I think you, know, you can obviously pack too much information on a product page and overwhelm the consumer. So I think a lot of like Nathan's comments there were really good at how do you stay focused. Uh, but I do think this idea of constant reinvention is, is actually really important. And then Jeff Bezos uh, is a good quote when I was researching again, where did the text review ideas come from? We don't make money when we sell things. We make money when we help customers make purchase decisions. So unless you're in case you're thinking, oh my god, this is so pedantic, like why do I even have to read this? Um, the site that's up here, shopping.com, some of you will remember, a uh, phase that we sort of skipped over in talking about the evolution of the space was this uh, phenomenon was called price comparison sites. And there was a bunch of them. Shopping.com was just one. But this was a huge space created, like it made tons of money. There was huge uh, sales of these companies for hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and what these sites were doing were they were trying to be aggregators of uh, shopping behavior. So they would, they had a lot of SEO and they would get a lot of SEM um, and they tried to create product pages. Um, and so, you know, you see this page, which I've chopped in half, um, and it looks like a pretty full product page for something that's circa, um, you know, mid 2000s. Um, but actually, when you look at it, there really isn't a lot of information here. There are different places that you can buy the product cheaply. There's three lines on the product itself, and then there's some text reviews, and then there's video reviews from what Gen Video used to be called Expo TV, and so they integrated uh, video reviews from us um, onto the page. And, um, and so we were working with these guys, uh, and so th there, there, there isn't a lot of really deep information. And, uh, and what the guys were really doing was taking that traffic that they were getting from Google and just reselling it to Dell and whoever those other retailers are that are up there on the page. Um, and so, but they knew that they needed to do more. They needed to have more information. The problem was they didn't work with brands because they weren't a retailer. And they didn't really, I mean, they were kind of the enemy of the retailer in a way, even though they were selling them leads. So they didn't have the retail information, they didn't have brand information. So again, they were in syndicating reviews. I think that's power reviews. 
on the tech side and in syndicating from us video because they didn't have any other way to get video content. And so I'm looking at the traffic that we're generating for them and I go to them and I'm like, oh, you guys are getting tons of views, you're getting tons of value, are you happy? And they're like, well, we're kind of happy. And I'm like, well, you know, why, why aren't you happy? And they're like, well, there's this metric that you guys are affecting. And I was like, well, what is it? Is it time on site? And I'm like, time on site? Well, we are definitely driving up your time on site, which is greatness. We are helping people make product decisions, Jeff Bezos. And they go, yeah, but the thing is, time on site, we really want it to be like short, like really short. So if, we, if a consumer spends over five seconds on our site, then we failed uh, because we see the click-through rate go down. And I'm like, so you integrated video on your site and you were hoping time on site would go down? That was never gonna happen. And they're like, we know, but this is just the conflict we see. So on the one hand, they knew they needed to do more to inform product decisions, but when they did it because they weren't the retailer, it was hurting their core business. Um, for those of you who don't know the end of the story, uh, but again, actually shopping.com not only was integrating from us, uh, integrating video from us, text reviews from um, uh, e, um, power reviews, they were also integrating, they bought a company called ePinions, which had these really long, really, really long text reviews on their site. But you can see it's not even integrated onto the product page. Why not? Would have killed the time on site or driven it up. Killed in this weird reverse way, reverse world. The challenge was um, uh, what happened to them, and they, they knew it was going to happen, and it eventually did happen, Google de-indexed them. They said, you're not adding any value. We understand if people spend five seconds on your site, you're not doing anything. So you're just this sort of middleman. It's just an arbitrage play. And they ended up killing the whole industry basically in a week. Um, so a really interesting thing, like, and shopping.com knew it was coming, but they couldn't do anything to change it. So it's operating within the context of the world that you find yourself in but trying to understand the big picture. I love the Walmart redesign. I was so excited. It was like, I can't believe this is happening as we're having this content uh, conference. I, as I said, I promise I had already written this slide when, um, except I obviously didn't have that picture until yesterday. Um, I didn't know that the, that the redesign was gonna get announced, um, but so happy that it did. I think everything that they're doing uh, is super smart. Um, love the personalization. So one thing about personalization is, you know, it's so obvious to do, and it's not that complicated. There's tons of technologies that do it, but L2 Research just came out a couple weeks ago and said they had uh, done some research and only 20% of retailers were using personalization. Well, when Walmart.com does it, I think we'll see that number shoot up. So again, it's one of those things that that technology is 10 years old. Only 20% of people are using it. It's inevitable, and so now I think we've though hit the tipping point um, when the you know the second biggest e-commerce site um, adopts it. I think we'll start to see that, and I think it's going to be great, and I think it's the perfect thing at the perfect time. So bringing in all those things is 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 wonderful. Um, the other thing, though, again, that sort of goes along with that a little bit is what I call proportionality, um, and that is understanding not just me, Bill, but understanding the product that I'm shopping for, and so. Um, down at the bottom, you know, it was interesting when e-commerce first started, there was a product page template, you know, for 
a given site. Now there are every e-commerce site, especially ones that are working across multiple verticals, have dozens of product uh, page templates, and they've become more and more relevant to the category that they're in and more and more different. And you can sort of see that as you bounce from category to category, uh, like on an Amazon um, and, and a little bit on Walmart.com as well, and then presumably even more so in the next iteration. And again, that's, that's where the comment was made earlier. Make sure you look outside your category to see what's happening in other categories. It's really, really critical to understand what's the information that's relevant in the category that I'm in and what is happening in other categories that might be relevant. Um, and, and again, obviously I'm a, uh, an apologist for, um, uh, for rich media and think that you will only continue to see more and more and more of it. Um, and this is again where the idea for me comes to say like, well then do I need a video for toothpaste or not? I think the answer is you absolutely do need a video to sell toothpaste. The question is just where am I gonna put that video? And that video may be even more important to put on a YouTube um, as an integration into an influencer's piece of content, right? So get ready with me is a huge vertical uh, or a huge category uh, of types of videos on uh, on YouTube right now where these girls wake up and they go, and they have their boyfriend shoot the video where they like pretend like they're waking up and they throw back the covers and then they go put on their makeup. That is the perfect place to have your 30 minute or 30 second to one minute um, integration of a toothpaste uh, clip. So there are definitely places to have a toothpaste video and get ready with me would be a perfect one. Um, and then, you know, as you go down the funnel, obviously you move a little bit toward, more toward um, reviews and unboxings and things like that that are going to be relevant in, uh, uh, in other categories where the demonstration carries the day. The other thing which, again, we, is, is a little bit beyond the scope of today, but further to that thought is, you know, making sure that you are taking advantage of all the opportunities that um, retailers have and a little bit more on um, this idea of, you know, do I need a video to sell toothpaste? Do I need a video to sell toilet paper? Um, this was an example where we worked with, uh, we were working with Kimberly Clark and their shopper marketing agency um, to um, promote not just the product itself, uh, first with Huggies diapers, but then later with um, paper towels, uh, toilet paper, uh, and then even adult incontinence products. Um, not just the product, but how am I going to buy that product? And particularly in that category, right, a subscribe and save uh, was really important. And so we married those two together, things together in a theme, um, and it was extraordinarily successful. And so again, these ideas of, you know, now in-store pickup, um, you know, what are the perfect products where that's going to be super relevant and how can I marry myself to that and make a cam campaign out of that, either bringing it onto the product page or taking it off the product page, but delivering that same message through a marketing campaign that's going to deliver those types of results. Uh, and this is just a little bit uh, of a deeper look um, into the impact that video can have. So I think, um, and I would probably even apply uh, the same kind of concept to um, imagery, and when we think about imagery, uh, you know, the comment was made today, like, show products in their natural state, show products in the home, show the kids home with, you know, disorganized. And so one thing you might think when you hear that is, well, that's great and all, but if I do a shoot outside of the studio, it's a heck of a lot more expensive, and, you know, can I afford that? And what I would say is, and that definitely applies to video, because if you're paying influencers $100,000 a throw, that's an expensive campaign for sure. 
Um, by the way, there are a lot of influencers that work for a lot less than that, so don't worry. You don't have to have $100,000 to come talk to me afterwards. Um, but but uh, rich media is expensive, right? It's, it's a lot more expensive than, you know, than, than writing bullet points. The, the, the thing, though, is you can't afford not to. This is the way people are shopping, and we are only going to see more of it. And when you really do dig into the numbers, and one of the other things I think that is still interesting about e-commerce 20 years later, we're still not really great at digging through the analytics and really picking apart the trends. It's a lot harder to analyze an e-commerce co uh, campaign than it is a traditional media campaign, paradoxically almost, because there's so much more data, but there's almost so, so many more things that are impacting your conversion rates and your traffic trends and where you're indexing in the search results. Uh, but what I will tell you is I've done enough of these over 10 years to tell you it absolutely works. Video on a product page, the right video, especially if you're not repurposing a 30-second spot, it drives behavior, it drives conversion, it drives basket size, it drives all of those positive things. And the only challenge for poorshopping.com was that they couldn't figure out how to monetize that deeper time on site, because time on site is gold. Um, one other thing, again, to think about, and it's especially for an old guy like me um, who loves my laptop and even my desktop, I'm not afraid to admit it, um, you know, but remembers these days, and, and you know, when I was a venture capitalist in 2000, we were talking about mobile was next year. Next year, mobile was going to be huge. And mobile was not huge until something happened, and that something that happened was the launch of the iPhone. And so that I think we can all agree on. But what did the iPhone really do? What the iPhone did is it made it a beautiful experience. For those of you who, you know, again, were around in 2000 and the state of the art was uh, Crackberry, a Crackberry was really, really great at sending emails, but it was not uh, in communicating when you couldn't get your laptop open or working and there was no such thing as like ubiquitous Wi-Fi. Um, it wasn't much good for anything else. You wouldn't browse, uh, you know, an app uh, on, a, on a Crackberry. Um, and so, this is what's changed. It's a immersive, deep experience filled with images and videos, and videos now stream because of the beauty of 4G. And so that's where you see the percent of commerce going up, 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 up on a mobile device, and that's not gonna change. So this is one of those places where you can absolutely see the future, and the future is mobile, and the future is, uh, is rich media because God knows we're not going back to Crackberries. Nobody wants to be reading text and typing on a phone. What we want to do is we want to be inspired, um, and we want to see aspirational content that, you know, that moves us through the, through the funnel. Another one that you can definitely see the future, uh, but I will tell you, I don't have great predictions of how this is going to play out, but I think it is incredibly interesting that... Um, you know, we're all talking about voice. We all know it's going to happen. We all know it's coming. But here's the thing, think about product pages. They are extraordinarily quiet unless I press play on a video. And there are no autoplay videos, at least none with sound, on product pages. So product pages may be the quietest place on the internet right now, yet voice is the thing that we're thinking about uh, as much as anything in terms of innovation in e-commerce. Those two things can't coexist forever. Somehow sound and voice is coming to the product page itself. We just have to figure out how that's going to happen. And I, I don't know. I hope influencers are part of it, because otherwise I won't benefit that much. Um, we do think it's really compelling to take the, um, 
the soundtrack, the audio track out of an influencer video. That's one of the other great things about influencer content. Not only can we chop up the videos themselves, but we have transcripts that we can use for quotes. We have images that we can use for imagery and we have soundtracks that we can use for voice applications. So we think that is really, really interesting. Just don't quite know what that looks like when you put it onto a product page or how you put it on a product page just yet. Um, and again, I think uh, hopefully at this point it's pretty obvious. Um, uh, we think uh, you know, you're only gonna see more video um, integrated into the product pages. Um, uh, some of you may have already started to see, but on Amazon, uh, they are now using a light box uh, to present video, um, which enables them at the top of the page to have multiple videos now embedded into the image gallery. They've also started dividing images and videos apart when you click into the light box, so clearly they believe more video is coming. They've long featured what they call related videos down below, which is an area that they can fit 10 videos in a strip right above the text reviews. Uh, so again, one of the things I think we start to see is um, texture views are amazing. Um, if you don't have texture views on your page, you should definitely run a sampling campaign uh, or do whatever you need to do to get them. They are a credentialing factor. They've, they've changed the world and then I certainly believe, I credit texture views for driving out bad products. You can't, if you have a product that is under four stars, either change the product as, as they did or give up. Right? I mean, it's just, you're done. Um, uh, and so that's great. That is really good, because now I don't have to, like when I was a little kid and the toy would come and it was broken half the time, it never happens anymore. Packaging is great, the products are great, everything works, because if it's not four stars, it's not gonna exist for very long. Um, but I don't spend a lot of time reading text reviews anymore. I check to see what the star rating is, 4.2 or above, check. 30 or more reviews, okay. Other people bought it, that's like critical mass, and then that's it. Now I'm looking at the rich imagery. Um, and, and then I'm looking for that inspiration. And so I do think um, uh, that is the trend. And so what I think you'll actually start to see is influencer content start to infiltrate the, the, the imagery at the top of the page, which hasn't happened yet, but you know, Nathan touched on it. Um, although with the idea of you know, make sure you have a picture of a kid's room uh, maybe professionally shot, I would say you can get that content from, from influencers and, and, and from my company, and that'll be one of the main things that you know, we will launch to be companion to video over the next, uh, over the next year. And then just one other thing to think about, and again, it's a little bit beyond the scope of today, um, but think about what this might mean. There's a lot of talk right now about um, direct-to-consumer and brands feeling like um, you know, Walmart and Amazon have a lot of power and you know, should we be launching direct-to-consumer sites? Um, I don't actually believe in that trend. I think it's super difficult um, to, to run DTC sites and there's not really a reason why I wanna go to the Procter & Gamble store. Um, and that actually has been tested and proven. Um, but there are some things that, you know, that can occur around personaliz uh, personalization and customization of products and different ways to get people involved with your products. And I think you know, when, certainly when you work at a company that's, that's able to do that, um, like with the Lay's example and, and um, uh, you know, everything that they've done to create custom recipes over the years based on uh, fan um, uh, suggestions, you know, bring that onto the product page. I think that involvement with consumers is amazing and where there are opportunities to personalize, I think that's great and I think that is the way this next wave of what, what's being called the direct-to-consumer sort of push uh, will end up uh, playing out.
And then last couple of slides. So again, just in terms of if you are thinking about doing more with influencer especially, um, you know, think about the new purchase decision. So the funnel is shifting and changing in a world where influencer marketing is influencer media. Um, so there are different ways and there are different entry points that they're going to get to the product page. So what are those? Understand those and hopefully find ways that are paths that are as short as possible and that is very, uh, that is very doable. Uh, so Instagram is launching um, new functionality to improve shopping. Pinterest is doing the same thing. YouTube is inherently shoppable the way it works. Um, and you know, so, so again, understand that funnel and how people are getting to your product page. Um, sort of similar thought, right? Think holistically. Think about how can, you be, can we be using these social platforms to drive people down funnel? And then supporting them on the product page itself. It is logistically complicated, but it is absolutely worth the, uh, the effort to do it. Um, and this is just sort of the reiteration of the contextual point, like understand what people are doing on the different platforms, um, what it might imply for where they are in the funnel. Is it a discovery device or are they trying to educate themselves? Um, so again, if you think about YouTube, right, we all go on YouTube to learn how to change a tire or, or make a recipe, right? So it is an inherently educational platform. Great place for a brand message where you need to convey some, you know, some educational benefits. Uh, Instagram maybe something different, maybe purely uh, inspirational. Um, and again, we talked about the uh, the Kimberly Clark example. So, uh, you know, I think the thing is um, when I spend time with brands, right? There's always that tension uh, between, you know, working with Walmart, um, Walmart's interests, and our interests as you know, as as brand representatives. Um, the reality is, right, Walmart is in, and as is everybody, right, in a battle and a struggle to succeed and win and gain market share. And so it's thinking creatively about the ways to partner and support their mission along with our own mission. Um, and so one of the things we love to do in our campaigns, um, which always start generically, like non-retailer specific, but when we can add that specific retailer message, have this influence, you know, have the, have the influencers talk about their Walmart experience along with talking about the product, we think is super, super compelling. It's almost like a gift to the retailer and how can we take advantage of this in good faith. Um, and you know, when you do that, you can create some real mutual um, wins. And then last but not least, sort of back to the little red dress. Um, be authentic. Like we never script our influencers. We always have the disclosures there, um, and you know, and have fun with it, right? So this is a video where uh, it was obviously a diaper campaign, and the kids like got the sample box of diapers and like you know had a party, and so the diapers were strewn all over the room. You know, you might look at that and go like, that doesn't seem like the way we want our brand represented. But what's happening here is joy and fun. Um, and a whole lot of Huggies diapers all over the place that um, you know, is leaving a lasting impression uh, in the viewer's mind, and ultimately, I think, a very positive um, brand message. Um, so you know, I think as long as you're transparent in your sponsorships um, and you know, you're embracing the influencer and the fact that they are the experts in appealing to their subscribers, I think there's some really great magic that can come out uh, by unleashing that creativity. And that is it. Um, so thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us for the Supplier Community Podcast. Please look for our next podcast soon, featuring an interview with country music star Hunter Hayes, where he talks about the value of influencer marketing. As always, you can find more information on our website, supplier.community.
You've been listening to another episode of the Supplier Community Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. To get in touch with us, any of our experts, or to be featured as a supplier community expert, reach out to amanda at supplier.community. 